We're very lucky to have, well, you here, the audience, of course. Uh, Charles, for his dedication to Callaloo and for Callaloo's premiership in American letters, and now transatlantic thought. And tonight, Vivi Francis and Marza Mengesti. If I say a word, pronounce a word wrong, it's the caffeine I've been drinking all day, and just <laughs> ignore it. We're in for a treat because we're going to hear fiction and poetry from two um, of the strong writers who represent right now creative writing, thinking, the imaginative arts in the US, and who also speak globally in terms of their subject matter concerns. Um, the first reader will be Maza Mengesti. And I've seen you read before, Maza, a couple of times. And each time, you know, it's been a, a treat. The last time you met was in Jamaica at Calabash, where you read to a large audience who were, kept talking back to you because of the truth that you were speaking to the power of Rastafarian thought in, in your book, beneath the first novel, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, which um, it's, you've got to read, those of you who write fiction and those of you who are concerned about African history, or in, even if you're slightly interested in it and in the work and mission of Kalalu, then you've got to go and check this book out. It's a fantastic um, book. She's working in her second novel right now, and currently um, Maza is an assistant professor at CUNY in New York. Her work is on the Guardian newspaper here in the UK. So uh, said that her, her first novel, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, was one of the top 10 best books, contemporary books about Africa. As you know, Africa is a big place. <laughs> and if you've written the top 10 best books about the continent, you've edged out a lot of books, number 11 to 500. <laughs> and so, you know, on the strength of that Guardian recommendation, you should be curious. But if that's not enough for you, her work has been in the New Yorker, the New York Times, BBC, Radio 4, World Literature Today, Words Without Borders, Granta, and so on. So there's a kind of transatlantic thing about her, which um, adds to that global profile. Um, it sounds like she should be like much older than she is. She's only like 15. <laughs> so, I mean, she's done so much. <laughs> She, she writes fiction, non-fiction, and, and how she defines it, I like the definition, so I'm going to read it directly. Dealing with migration, the relationship between photography and the war, and the plight of sub-Saharan immigrants arriving in Europe. And you can hear those concerns, how crucial they are in terms of bodies moving across a landscape and being blocked and stopped. She recently completed a documentary project, Girl Rising, with 10 times 10 films that focuses on girls' education globally. The second novel that she's working on is called, it's provisionally titled, The Shadow King. It's set in the early days of World War II, and it's forthcoming. And I know um, we, we're a select audience, but I'd like us to kind of put our hands together rapturously for Maza. Thank you. Fred, I wonder if I can take you around everywhere. Um, when I get ready to read. Uh, thank you so much, Charles. Thank you for everything. For Callaloo, uh, I don't even remember right now how many of these Callaloo workshops I have done, but it is always an honor 
to be here, um, to see how many different places that we go that you take us, um, and to see kind of the dynamics in every classroom. As much as I think you students um, feel like you get out of a week or two weeks uh, with us, I think I speak for Vivi and, and um, some of the other instructors that we always leave the classroom at the end of the day completely astounded by the work that we see and the, and the development and the risks that all of you are taking with the writing. So thank you all for that. Um, I'm going to read from my new novel, which is very much in radical revision. Um, and so I, am, I don't know if this will stay <laughs> in the book, but you will hear it. Uh, the, the scene, um, well, the novel is set in the early days of World War II and um, deals with the fascist invasion, Italy, um, Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. A lot of my work in this novel has come from historical research, archival research, and photography, the photographs that Italian soldiers took of Ethiopians, and particularly Ethiopian women. Um, not very long ago, I, I got one of these albums I've been collecting for a long time, and I got an album that was full of um, photographs of m m women and girls, and they were mostly nude. And I think my initial reaction after the outrage um, my first reaction was, well, who, who are these women? And, uh, and then deciding, well, I can, write, I can write from that perspective. I can write about these women in my book. Um, but I think the more difficult and more complicated and more interesting question came for me when I started wondering, well, who was the photographer, right? Um, I need to be that photographer in order to push myself as a writer, push myself as a human being, because in this, isn't this why we write? I need to be this photographer. Um, so this scene is set uh, in a moment where uh, two women, Hirut and Aster, um, in the Ethiopian army that was fighting the Italians, women were soldiers just like men. So Hirut and Aster have are soldiers, and they've just been captured. So they are prisoners of war. And um, they've been taken by the Italians. I don't know what else I, oh, so if you hear the word Askari, Askari were the native soldiers who were Somali, Eritrean, or Ethiopian, who were fighting with the Italians against Ethiopia. So Askari, Askaro. That's what that is, a native soldier. Hirut was pulled out of her cell while she was still asleep and dragged outside. Blinking wildly in the sun, she shivered and hunched so low, Ettore could see the ridges of her spine. She kicked and struggled as she was led to the mud wall of her makeshift cell, fighting so hard that it took two Ascari to hold her still. She was made to stand in front of Ettore while the top of her dress was yanked to her waist. Ettore didn't want to look at her. 
He didn't want to be inside this barbed wire fence, listening to the mutterings of this terrified young woman. He was just a soldier. How had he come to be in this place, in front of a girl his commander believed was part of a rumored army of Ethiopian women? He turned to the major. How do I do this, sir? Behind him, a group of soldiers drank their coffee and whistled as the girl's arms were held down away from her chest. Major Fucelli stood next to Ettore, a hand on his pistol. Last week, a unit next to us was nearly wiped out in an ambush. We know rebels are hiding in these hills. We know some of them are women. Take the picture, soldato. The girl was looking at the ground her chin bent into her neck. Tell her to lift her head, the major said. Aren't you an Italian? Ragazza, ti prego, fai così, Ettore began. Do like this. He raised his own chin, but she wouldn't look at him. The major grabbed her hair and pulled until her head lifted up. He whispered in her ear, jabbing the mouth of the gun into her ribs. Hirut pulled out of the man's hold. She spit in his face, and if he hadn't stepped back, it would have hit its mark. Ettore raised the camera to his eye. Through the viewfinder, she was just a small figure, parts misaligned until he focused and put her back together. Hirut stared into the camera, disgusted, and Ettore froze. That, the major shouted, that's the one you should have taken. What's the matter? You think she's going to attack? He strode forward and grabbed Hirut by the arm. Watch. He squeezed so hard, even Ettore winced. See? Nothing. He let go and wiped his hands on his shirt. Now take photographs like you know how to do. Ettore nodded and focused. Hirut leaned against the wall, stunned, holding the arm Fucelli had grabbed, staring at it with wide eyes as if unsure it was really hers. Ascaro, the major said, pointing to a black soldier. Tell her that if she doesn't stand straight, there are men happy to make her more obedient. The Ascaro translated the major's words, his voice tinged with a rising dread. Hirutu put her hands over her face as if to think in private. Then she dropped them and turned to Ettore and raised her chin. She blinked away every expression in her eyes until they were flat and dark and cold. She stood straight and put her back against the wall. She lifted her head and brought her feet together. She put her arms to her side. She stood at attention. He took a photograph. He advanced the film. He readied, he readied the camera again. She didn't move. So he took another photo. Then he waited, and when she still didn't move, he snapped another, identical to the one before, and another, and another, and another, and one more. Then he stopped, unsure of what to do, a slow panic building inside him. What's this? The major said. He walked around Hirut in a wide circle that shrank until he hovered close to her ear, glaring into her face. Hirut stared past him as if he were invisible, as if he didn't matter. 
They stood like that for so long that Ettore turned to shoot the soldati watching with amusement just beyond the barbed wire fence, their coffees forgotten. He took one picture, then snapped another as their smiles gave way to frowns. He took a photo of the Ascari watching with their hands over their mouths, their eyes guarded. He took a photo of the lengthening shadow falling behind the major and was about to photograph the Ascari again when he heard Major Fucelli say, are you disobeying orders? Fucelli's back was to Ettore as he stepped away from the young woman. I better hear you changing that roll of film soon. Ettore photographed Hirut's legs. He took her hands. He knelt and framed her dusty feet and slender ankles. He captured the elegant slope of her neck and the well-formed head that refused to bow. He avoided her chest. He was doing as he'd been ordered. She was doing what she could. Both of them were frightened, only one of them brave. As the major kept yelling for him to shoot, he stepped so close to the girl that he knew the lens couldn't focus at that distance, and Ettore took photo after photo of Hirut's eyes, knowing only he would ever see the way hatred swayed so easily between shame and fear. Then he took the last photo and began to rewind the film, knowing that even now, every photograph would look exactly the same. Dozens and dozens of Hiruts, glorious in their rage. Then it was Aster's turn, where Hirut was quiet and defiant. The older woman was movement and noise. She was a body crashing through restraining hands, spinning so wildly that Ettore couldn't take a photograph. When the top of her dress was pulled down, she pulled it up. When she was pushed against the wall, she slid down to the ground. When the major came to yank her upright, she grabbed his legs to throw him down. She screamed a name that made the Ascari pause, and even Fucelli said, Now I have proof. Now I have proof. They work for that rebel leader, Kidana. From her cell, Hiru watched Aster with a trembling mouth, her hands on her face. The more the woman refused to be stilled, the more Hirut began to move. She opened her arms and swung her hands. She spun out of an imaginary hold. She was beautiful movement reduced to its most essential parts. Ettore turned away from Aster and leaned towards Hirut. He adjusted the shutter and darkened shadows. He made her a slender figure, trying to find her rhythm, caught in a stunted pirouette. The photographs were developed. They were made into postcards and passed out to Major Fucelli's men. They were sent to newspapers and used by journalists. They were kept as souvenirs and discussed in administrative meetings. The photographs of the women were distributed to shops in Asmara and Addis Ababa, in Rome and Calabria, in officers' clubs in Tripoli and Cairo. Hirut and Aster were called many things, angry Amazon, woman warrior, African Juliet. They were handled and ripped and framed and pasted into albums, and from everywhere came the requests. Can we put them in front of huts with their rifles? Can we stage an attack with a few of your men? 
Put on your cleanest uniform, Fucelli. Put on your most ravaged uniform, Fucelli. Put on your helmet. Put on this medal. Put on these sunglasses. Stand in profile. Stand between them. Stand to their left, Major, and tell us, what have you learned about the native? Thank you.